I'm grateful to pastor a church where we don't apologize or compromise what we believe. Nor do we adjust to the whim of the times or the input of the culture. And that's very important if we want to be the church God wants us to be. We're in a series on overcoming. And today I want us to talk about overcoming temptation. Now, by that I do not mean that you get to the point where you're never tempted. What I mean by that is you get to the point where you recognize that you have power over the temptation through Jesus Christ. No one is immune or exempt from temptation. I've probably told you this before, but I had a uh, speech professor who was also my debate coach in junior college. And one day in class, we were talking, and, and he said, you know, he said, I haven't sinned in 10 years. My first thought was, I bet if I hit his toe with a hammer, he would. <laughs> We cannot be sinless, but we can be blameless. We cannot reach a point where there will never be temptation in our life, for as long as we live and breathe, we will find temptations coming our way. But we don't overcome temptation by discipline, nor do we overcome it by saying, okay, I'll just try harder and I'll discipline my flesh and I'll govern my actions and I'll do all these things. I will do all these things. You can't overcome temptation that way because that which is born of flesh is flesh. And the flesh cannot please God, nor can the flesh overcome temptation. Overcoming temptation is something that Jesus Christ gives you and I the power to do. And what we're going to do this morning is look at the source of temptation and see where it all comes from. See the base of how all of this begins to happen because temptation appeals to me to feed my flesh, to act out my own life, to live life on my terms, to do it my way. Frank Sinatra was buried with a fifth of whiskey under his arm, a pack of camels in his pocket, and ten dimes. He did it his way. Now he's found out, no matter where he is, that Jesus is the only way. We may all sing and we may all live and we may survive in a world where everybody says, hey, you know, live life on your terms. But you don't have to do that. In fact, that is the very problem with temptation. It tells us to live life on our own terms. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2 and James chapter 1. I want us to look at a couple of reference points before we go uh, to the book of Isaiah, then we'll go to Genesis. 1 John chapter 2 gives us Satan's trinity of temptation. Satan basically has three ways that he attacks us. Now, it may take thousands of forms, but they all come down to these three basic methods in the way that he works. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 John is writing and he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. God is not the source of temptation. God is not the source of lust. The word lust means over-desire. It means going beyond the boundaries that God has set. 
moving beyond the barriers that he has set for our good and for our well-being. In other words, it's not wrong to eat, it's wrong to overeat. Uh, sex is not wrong, sex outside of marriage is. Money is not bad, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And you and I need to understand God has set up boundaries not to harm us, but that so that we could enjoy life to the fullest. God's boundaries are for our protection. And when we are tempted to cross those boundaries, those temptations never come from God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. James chapter 1 and verse 13. James 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, let's go to that trinity of temptation. First of all, there's the lust of the flesh. That's the consuming passion to do something. Now, the lust of the flesh takes us over and we get a consuming passion or a consuming drive to do something. Normally when we think of the lust of the flesh, we think in the realm of sexuality, but that's not the only place it's limited to. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. That's the compelling urge to have something. The compelling urge to have something. I, I mean, you, you know, the advertising world is geared to do one thing, to make you feel like you've got to have it. And you don't just have to have it, you have to have it today. And you have to have it now. And you've got to get it in this moment. And you've got to have it before somebody else gets it. And you've got to have more of it than somebody else has. And we're competing with the Joneses. And we just found out the Joneses have refinanced three times to try to keep up with us. It's the lust to have. It's the desire to want more. Then there's the pride of life. That's the constant push to be. Pride in position, in fame, in influence, in power the pride of life. And when you study Scripture, these are Satan's plans and patterns of attack. And they all come back down to these three. Now I want to ask you to, to turn to Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah 14, we are introduced to Lucifer, the son of the morning. Lucifer is one of the names for Satan. He's called by a number of names. But Lucifer, the son of the morning, is portrayed to us as one who desired to be like the Most High. Now, he is, this is not an account of a human being, although some commentators will apply it to it. One of the reasons that this is in the Scripture is to show us how Satan fell. Now, God does not tell us when he fell or where he fell. God does not get into endless speculation, and the Bible is silent on this subject. The Bible tells us all we need to know. There's a created being, his name was Lucifer, he was a leader of praise in heaven, and he decided he wanted the praise for himself. And so he rebelled against the Most High God. And in his rebellion, he was cast out, and he was the leader, if you will, of an independence movement from God. This was the declaration of independence of Satan. I will not rule under God's rule. I will not lead under God's leadership. I'm going to control my own destiny. And his temptation to us is to do the same thing. Look at verse 13, and I want you to notice the beginning. But you said in your heart, by the way, if you remember Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, verse 1, in both of those Psalms, you remember it says, The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. All of our sin begins in our heart. It doesn't begin with our eyes. It doesn't begin with our hands. It doesn't begin with our feet. It begins in our heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Satan, Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Five times he says, I will. Now notice what he does. And we're going to follow this all the way through this morning. He says, I will ascend to heaven. That's the lust of the flesh. I see something that I want. I want to have a throne there. That's the lust of the flesh. He says, I will raise my throne above the stars. That's the lust of the eyes. Satan saw something with his eyes that he wanted, and he desired to have it. He no longer wanted to keep his place with God where he was and where he could have been perfectly content, but he wanted to go beyond that. Then he says, I will be like the Most High. That's the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life all go back to the three initial statements of Satan in those five I will statements. They all come down to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan is trying to tempt man to live independently of God. Now Romans 14, 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That is the most all-inclusive definition of sin that there is in the Scripture. We define sin mostly by acts, but sin is really an attitude. Paul says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That means that faith is dependence on God, but sin is independence from God. When we walk by faith, we are depending on God. When we are tempted to sin and we sin, we choose to declare our independence from God. Now, as we look at the system of temptation, you'll notice that Satan drives us to independence and then to opposition. He tries to entice man to do the very thing he did against God. And so he works on us, and, and let me tell you why Satan does this. This is his way to get back at God. He has rebelled against God. He will ultimately be cast into the pit of hell with everyone who has followed him. But this is his way to get back at God. Satan loves to get a Christian to sin and to stumble and then to wave that Christian's life and failure into the face of God and say, look at what I did with one of your children. Look at what I convinced them to do. It's his slap in the face at God. And when we sin, Satan takes that before God and he says, look at what I got your children to do. Look at how I got them to disobey. Look at how I got them to, to rebel against you. Look at how I got them to love sin more than they love the Savior. He loves to display our failures. Now, the great thing about God is God doesn't hold our failures against us. He wipes them out and he forgives us and he cleanses us. But that's why Satan tempts us. Because you see, Satan does not care about his victims. You're just part of the pawn in his hand. And he uses you simply to lash out against God. Now turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we have the recorded act of the first temptation and the first sin. You remember in the garden, fear entered in. Adam said, I was afraid 
God was not the initiator of fear. Satan was. Now temptation comes, which is not from God, as we've already seen. And God and man have been walking in Genesis chapter 2 in perfect fellowship with one another. They've been walking in the cool of the evening, in the garden. They've been fellowshipping. God has been meeting every one of their needs. But now we come to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now you see, this is how... Satan is trying to work. He's trying to get us to not believe what the Word says. But God put a tree in the garden. Did he have to do that? No, but he did it. God did it because he wanted us to follow him, not out of blind allegiance or out of robotic faith. God wanted us to follow him in loving loyalty. God wanted us to make a choice. And you see, our choices determine the quality of our life. Whatever you choose to do with your life determines the quality of your life. And God had a quality life set aside for man. No sin, no sorrow, no tears, no sadness, no pain. And man said, I choose not to walk that path, which has limited the quality of man's life ever since and has affected our quality of life. And Satan tempts us to make the wrong choice. God wants us to choose to love him. Now, there are three things that Satan does here. First of all, there's his tactic. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Has God said? Satan's tactic is doubt. Doubt. He doesn't want us to... Satan cannot come to the Christian and say, you know what, the Word of God's not true. Because we say, wait a minute, wait, wait the Word of God's true. He doesn't attack us by getting us to deny the Word. He attacks us by getting us to doubt the Word. Did God really mean what He said there? How many times have you heard somebody say, well, God really didn't mean that. That's just the way that we've looked at it, but God really didn't mean it. God really didn't say that. That was just a figure of speech. God really didn't do that. God really didn't perform that miracle. That's just something that he was playing to the crowd that he was with. It's a doubting of the Word of God. Has God said? Now notice his truth. His truth is found in verse 4. You will not surely die. Now what did God say in verse 17? In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now once he gets us to doubt the Word, then he can get us to deny it. By the way, Satan was the first liberal theologian. All he wanted people to do was doubt the Word. All he wanted people to do was end up denying it. And every time a preacher or a teacher or a college professor stands in a pulpit or stands behind a lectern and says the Word of God doesn't really say what it says, he's a tool of Satan for doubt and denial. And you should never listen to anybody, no matter how good, how slick, how polished they might be, if they tell you to doubt the Word of God, you need to hear the devil talking. If they tell you to deny, the God, deny God, you need to see the devil talking. Because his tool and his tactic and his truth is a lie. You see, what he does is he says, now God said this, but that wasn't the truth. You're not going to die. I know the truth. The truth is you won't die. God said the truth is you will die. Jesus said in John 8, 44, He's the Father of all lies. 
He's going to lie to us. It is his nature. And here's some of the ways he whispers in our ear. He says, you can get away with it. I know what God said, but you can get away with it. Number says, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, we don't need to have a, a bloodletting confession here, but how many times have you thought you could have gotten away with something and you got caught? I mean, it happens, doesn't it? it didn't, didn't plan to get caught. You know, I remember my mother was omnipotent. She was omnipotent. She was omnipresent. I mean, my mother saw, and she had eyes in the back of her head. She could say something to me, and she'd turn around, and I'd go, and she'd go, I saw that. How could she see it? She had her back turned. I don't know how she saw it, but she knew it. My sin always found me out. You know what we pray for our kids? God, let them get caught early. See, some people don't want to know the truth about their kids. Some people don't want to, don't want to believe that their kids can fall into temptation. I, hey, I want to know, and I want them to know, and I want whatever they do when they walk away from God, I want them to get caught early. Because the longer they go without getting caught, the further they go into sin, and the more they have to grieve over in the rest of their lives. I wish I'd gotten caught sometimes earlier than I got caught. Because you see, your sin finds you out. Sooner or later, it shows up. Secondly, Satan will say, it won't hurt you. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 27, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? The sad truth is, most of us have learned our lessons by experience rather, by, rather than applying the teachings of the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you, experience is a hard and unnecessary teacher. I don't have to eat pig slop to know that it's not very tasty. But some people have to go to the pig pen before they wake up. You see, we bought the lie of the devil. You need to have some experience. You need to broaden your experiences. You need to experience some things. I'm going to tell you something, folks. The happiest people in the world are the young Timothys that got saved when they were children and were raised in the church by godly parents and went off and stayed true to the Word of God. And they don't have all that junk that they have to confess, and they don't have all that junk that the enemy keeps bringing up to them. It's not the person that got saved out of the gutter when he was 40 years old that has the great memory. It's the one that doesn't have the memories of the nights away from God that has the great memories. Oh, man, give me a Timothy any day. Is there anything that happened in your life where you blew it and Satan keeps bringing it up to you? You know why? Because Satan told you somewhere in the line and you bought it that you just needed to experience this. That's how we take our first drink. That's how we get involved in immorality. That's how we begin to lie. That's how we begin to deceive. All of the things that get in our lives that we have to straighten up and let God clean up in our lives all begin by Satan just telling us one time, you just ought to try it. Here's his offer, verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, every temptation is an invitation to step out into independence from God. Now notice these phrases that he uses. He's, he's picturing worship for God as bondage. You, Adam and Eve, you're in bondage. You're all bound up with God. You need to be free. Notice he says, your eyes will be opened. This is a suggestion of a mystery, and our society loves mystery. John Grisham makes a lot of money writing mystery novels. 
I mean, we love mystery because it's something we don't know, but we're going to find out. Satan has always played on our desire to figure out mystery. And yet there are mysteries about the things of God we're never going to figure out. Notice he says, he says, your eyes will be opened. You're not going to be held captive anymore. You're going to see the end of the story before anybody else. Notice what else he says. God knows. He's suggesting that God knew something, but he wasn't going to tell them. Oh, God knows something, and he's keeping it from you. And it's time for you to stand up for yourself because God is cheating you out of knowing something. He's giving you the short end of the stick, and God knows if you, if you find out that you're going to be like him. And notice what he says, knowing good and evil. Now, boy, as I began to study this passage, I realized something in this passage. It was so incredible. Here's what Satan was saying. You know good. You've walked with God. You've fellowship with God. You've been in the garden with Him. You're naked and unashamed. You know good, but you only know half the truth. You see, it's not until you know evil that you're really bright. It's not until you walked in evil and you've experienced evil. Then you know. See, right now, you're naive. You need to know evil. You need to expose yourself and express yourself in evil because when you do that, it's proof that you will be like God because God knows good and evil. You only know good. You need to know these things, and he paints a picture that knowing evil is as important as knowing good, and you can't really live until you've experienced evil. Anybody in this room got anything you wish you didn't know? You wish you hadn't seen, you wish you hadn't done, and now you know it and it's forever lodged in your subconscious. And although it's forgiven by God, and although God has marked it off of your record and you're not held accountable for it, you can't get it out of your mind. You know evil. You feel better about it or worse. I've never met anybody that knew evil, that got forgiveness and deliverance from it, that felt better about knowing the evil. But Satan plays on us, oh, you need to know this. You need, to, you need the inside scoop on this. You, you, need the, you need the line on this. You need to understand this. You need to see where all this is coming from. Evil really isn't evil. It's just a form of self-expression. It's just getting out from under the heavy hand of God. It's just taking charge of your life. That's his system. Now look at the secret to overcoming. We continue in Genesis 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh. Now let me ask you something. Did Adam and Eve have a food shortage? Yes or no? No. Was God providing for them? Yes. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was delightful to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. You see, the original sin was a decision to do what God said he, they shouldn't do. It was independence. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, we looked at the temptation of Jesus, I guess, uh, a year or so ago. I lose track of time, but, but we looked at that, and the one thing we learned from the temptation of Jesus which is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that Jesus did not use anything to defeat the enemy in the wilderness that was not available to us. Jesus did not use the fact that he was the Son of God, Messiah. Jesus did not call on the angels for special help. Jesus did not orchestrate anything that we cannot orchestrate. 
Everything Jesus used to defeat the enemy in the wilderness is available to us. And what he used was the Word of God. Now, let me ask you something. If it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us, shouldn't it? The way you overcome temptation is a knowledge of the Word of God. Jesus had spent 30 years of his life. He had never preached a sermon. He had only made one appearance that we are aware of in the temple when he was 12 years of age. But he had been hammering nails and building homes. He had been a carpenter to the glory of God. And he shows up. He's baptized. He goes into the wilderness. But we learn one thing about him. In those 30 years, he saturated himself with the Word of God as a man. God in flesh was tempted. God was not tempted, but man was. Jesus as a man. Now you say, could Jesus have sinned? Yes, he could have. Because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he did not sin. That verse right there tells you it was possible that Jesus could have blown the plan of God as a man. But he did not, and he defeated it not by saying, hey, you're messing with the Messiah, you leave me alone. He did it by saying three times, it is written. Now look at his tactics. Look at Satan's tactics. If you are the Son of God. Sounds a whole lot like what he said to Adam and Eve. Has God said? Oh, oh, are you really the Son of God? Oh, I see. You're claiming to be that, but you know, 30 years you hadn't proven anything. Just a little mama's boy hanging around, hammering nails. Hadn't proven anything to me yet. If you're the Son of God, why don't you do something? He's casting doubt on the Word made flesh. See what he's doing? Jesus is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Satan is casting doubt on the Word made flesh. Notice his truth. If you are the Son of God, and that word if means if and you are, if and since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. That sounds a lot like take and eat. You see that fruit over there? Take it and eat it. Prove that you're God. Make a decision. Provide a miracle. Satisfy yourself. Notice his tempting offer. It's in three temptations. You're hungry? Do something about it. And the second temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, these people are coming to worship God. If you're God, jump down and let the angels save you. They'll proclaim you Messiah, and you won't have to go to the cross to do it. Do your Father's will your way. Isn't it interesting that Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done at the end? But I tell you, he had to do it at the beginning too. When he thought about the cross and when he knew what was ahead of him, it would have been awfully easy to jump down and let the angels protect him. But then you and I would have had no hope of overcoming temptation either because he would have had access to things we don't have access to. Thirdly, there's a temptation to bow down and fall down and worship Satan. Jesus says to all three, it is written. Victory comes by submission. Now there's the trinity of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Then there's the trinity of triumph. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, or if you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, the text is there at the bottom of the back of the notes. Matthew 16 and verse 24. These are two truths for you to hang your hat on. The trinity of triumph is found in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciple, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what's the answer to the lust of the flesh? Deny himself. 
Lord, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God in my body. The lust of the flesh, deny yourself. I could do that, but I don't have to. I could, but I don't have to. I don't have to surrender to the lust of the flesh. The second, the answer to the lust of the eyes is take up his cross. Now, the cross had one purpose. That was to die on. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he meant die to those things that you see that are appealing and take that which is unappealing because that's where you find life. You see, it's only in dying that we begin to live. You only find life when you go to the cross. Jesus said, if you want to overcome, you have to deny yourself. And once you've denied yourself, then you're willing to take up the cross. But you won't take up the cross if you've not first denied yourself. When you've laid down your rights and your choices and your freedom and your independence, you said, Lord, you're the boss in my life. I deny myself. I take up my cross. That's the victory over the lust of the eyes. And then the answer to the pride of life, follow me. Follow me. Don't follow your own agenda. Don't follow your own course. Don't walk your own path. Don't make up your own mind. Make sure that you're walking with me and you're following me. Now, there's a truth to claim for triumph, and I want to ask you to just read this. It's printed at the very bottom of the notes, and I want us to read it out loud if we could. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with, with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Can I give you a couple little points right here? First of all, you're not safe until you're home. You think that you're on top of the world, you're on your way down. You're not safe until you're home. You see, it's the stumble on the last turn that people remember. You can run the race well for 50 years, but if you blow it at the end, that's all folks will remember. You're never safe from Satan's temptations and wiles and schemes until you're home with Jesus. So don't ever think that you can coast. Second thing I would point out is pride is a sure path to failure. Pride is a sure path to failure. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Just about the time you think you've got something conquered, it'll come back and get you. Pride is a sure path to failure. Verse 13 tells me nobody's beyond temptation. None of us. But I find a promise here. God doesn't leave you to face it on your own. God doesn't leave you to face it on your own. I want you to notice a little phrase. The way of escape. This is a very vivid word in the Greek. It's the picture of an army trapped in a box canyon and in that box canyon they're surrounded by rocks and it seems like they're fenced in and there's no way out but there's an army approaching them from the one side where there's an exit from the one side where there's escape but they're, side, they're on three sides they have no way out the army is approaching them they look like they're certainly going to be defeated and overcome and overrun but all of a sudden, while looking around for a way out, they find a narrow pass between the rocks where one person at a time can get out. You know what God says? Look for the escape route. There is one there. 
when you feel boxed in, when you think you're about to give in to the pressures of Satan, when you feel like you cannot overcome, when you feel like it's too much to bear, don't look out at the enemy. Start looking around for the escape route because God has made one, and if you don't see it, keep looking. It'll show up in time. But God is faithful. He's made a way of escape. You see, he did that with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Joseph was trapped. Potiphar's wife was making the move on him, and he found a way of escape. He did it with Daniel, who did not defile himself by eating from the king's table. He did it with Moses, who wouldn't fall for the trap of the pride of life and continue to be the son of Pharaoh and say, hey, you know, I can help the children of God a lot more in a position of prominence than I can as a shepherd out in the fields. There's a way of escape. By the way, the most famous sin in the Bible is David's adultery and his murder of Uriah. You say, well, where was the way of escape? Well, just remember, he was on the balcony and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath and lust came in his heart and he called her in to his home and he slept with her and she conceived a child. You say, well, I don't see the way of escape. It's in there. Go read the story of David and find this one little statement. At a time when kings went to war, David awoke from his bed. David was taking a nap when he was supposed to be involved in a battle. And it led to the big black mark on his life that he never got away from. Let me give you one last statement to write down if I could. Our response to temptation, our response to temptation is an accurate barometer of our love for God. Our response to temptation is an accurate barometer of our love for God. In other words, when we yield to temptation, at that moment, even for a moment, at that moment, we say, in effect, I love this sin more than I love the Savior. I love doing this, being this, watching this, having this, thinking this, experiencing this more than I love the Christ who died for me. When we yield to temptation, we in effect say, this is how you can tell how much I love God right now. So I want to ask you, are you overcoming? One of our men shared with me about promise keepers in St. Petersburg, and one of the gentlemen speaking had the men cup their hands in front of them. And as they cupped their hands in front of them, he named 21 sins, lust and other sins, and had them put them in, the, in their hands and hold them there and look at them and stare at them and think about them. And after he named all those sins, he said, Now, put the sin there before you that's in your life that I didn't mention and look at it. He said, Now begin to lift it up. And as you lift it up, you'll find that the further you lift your hands, they've got to come apart. And when they come apart, you just surrender. You see, you only worship God when you quit cupping the sins that pull you down. When you quit holding on to them and looking at them, 
and you get them to the point where you look up and you see the Lord and then one day you'll surrender and realize, you know, Lord, I'm only worthy because of the salvation of Jesus Christ. My worthiness is not what I do and it's not what I have. It's not in the things that I've acquired or obtained. My worthiness is not in what anybody thinks of me. My worthiness is in you. And when you fall in love with Jesus and you realize you're worthy because of him, then that sin, you don't want to hold on to it as much anymore. The cure for overcoming temptation is falling in love with Jesus and staying in love with Jesus. Your response to temptation is an accurate barometer of your love for God.